everybody. Welcome once again to the Winning Digital Customers Podcast. I have just a fantastic guest with me today. I can't wait to get into it. Varesh Sita, who has just such an unbelievable background in transformation. He was the Chief Digital and Innovation Officer at the Avis Budget Group, where he drove some amazing transformation and acceleration of the speed of innovation at that company. And I think that's a key to what he's done at a lot of the roles that he's had. So I'm really excited to get in and talk to him. I know a lot of the people listening are always trying to figure out how can I get my company to move faster and more effective at innovation and transformation. And we've really got an expert with us today. In addition to his role there, he was the Chief Digital and Information Officer at F5, major multi-billion dollar technology company. Uh, he was the Global Head of Strategic Consulting at WeWork. He was the Chief Information Officer at Alaska Airlines, and he's other had other roles at places like Starbucks and Collier's and Capgemini, my old job. <laughs> and um, so anyway, bottom line is a uh, huge amount of knowledge and experience in our guest today. I can't wait to start grilling him for all of his lifetime <laughs> learnings. Thank you, Varesh, so much for being here. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Howard, fantastic. It's always great connecting with you. It's always great uh, chatting with you. You know, look at I... Um, I think I'm the luckiest person on the planet. I, I grew up in apartheid South Africa on the wrong side of apartheid, if there was a wrong side and a right side. And uh, you know, today I've had the most tremendous experiences with the companies you've described. I worked with the most amazing people along the way. Um, I have the best family ever. And today I'm sitting here having this conversation with you. So in many ways, I consider myself to be the luckiest person on the planet. Mm -hmm. Well, that's, that's a beautiful outlook. And, um, and uh, at, similarly, a lot of people are lucky to have you come in. I know from what I got to observe at Avis, um, because you definitely were a transforming force at a company that was doing a lot of good things, but they started doing a lot more good things a lot faster. So I'd love to dive in there first. Um, you have an approach to, to transformation innovation, because I got to observe you in action, that struck me as being kind of fundamentally different than what I've seen most others have. So. I have some thoughts about what it is, but I, I want to ask you maybe to describe it first, the way you think about transformation. Yeah, look, right, right out of the gates, I think about it as human first. Every single thing I do, I think about it as human first. When companies look at digital transformation, they think it's a hardware transformation or a software transformation. And you know what I like to say, the hardware is working, the software is working, it's the human where we need to upgrade. So I actually start there. Companies have done amazing jobs figuring out the what and the why. And yet when they want to do a digital transformation, that's what they focus on. What do we need to do? What do we need to do? And what I really focus on is the how and the who. And I believe in fundamentally changing the operating model of the company. So it's not just a digital transformation. It's an operating model transformation for the entire company, which shifts how, how work gets done so that innovation is not a separate project. Innovation is what you do every day. Agile or agility is not an initiative, it's just a way of working. So what you end up with is highly empowered people that are empowered, motivated, purpose-driven to deliver work at scale with a high degree of agility and velocity. And for me, it all starts with the people and how you organize structure and empower the people. Yeah, I, I think that's really profound. I mean, and I have to admit, even in my own career, I have very often taken it in the direction of saying, let's create the vision of where the company needs to go. What's that journey map? What's that experience that we need to deliver for the customer? And then ask the question, okay, and that can be daunting, you know, the vision of how far you want to get. And then say, okay, 
how do we need to change in order to get there? But the difference I see in your approach is actually you say, how do we need to change in order to be a company that's aligned with these kind of principles of how you operate successfully in the digital world? And then that transformed organization will figure out exactly where we need to go. So it's the how, as, as you say, the how and the who driving the what instead of what I personally have to confess have normally done, which is think about it the other way around. And I got a chance to see as you were doing that in action at, at Avis Budget Group, I kind of really learned something and I thought, oh wow, that's the opposite approach. And I, I can see that that actually, you know, I, what, I, what, I, what I noticed about it is I think it's more sustainable. I think you can certainly come up with a vision and figure out who do you need to execute it. But when you really want to change long term, because the what's always changing, right? Next year's what's going to be different than this year's what. So I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, I fully agree. And, you know, earlier on in my career, when I worked at companies like Danaher and, and went through things like Kaizen and Lean Value Stream Mapping, one of the things I learned and that is stuck with me all the time is the people that do the work actually know the work better than anyone and already know what needs to be done. They have already figured out the why or the what, but have never been empowered or have never been provided with the right tools, processes, etc., to be able to deliver on this. So thinking that you're gonna come in and have this new digital transformation program and that's gonna systemically change how the organization works is a bit of a fallacy. And you know what I found is to actually come in and work with the people that are already doing the work, who are smart people, highly capable people, and, and actually organize them in a slightly different operating model, moving away from this project-centric model and moving more into a product-based, team-based structure where you're not arguing and fighting over budgets and who's paying for things, but you actually take your time, focus on the work, and become more outcomes-focused. Um, and, and that's you know one of the things that a lot of companies don't realize. They have tremendous talent within their organizations already they just haven't unleashed or unlocked the full potential of that talent. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Well, you know, I want to press you a little bit on even more detail, and I'm sure you do it a little differently to every company because for those listening, I can imagine them thinking, okay, focus more on the, the how and the what, you know, focus on the people. Yeah, but like specifically how, like if so I'm trying to roll up my sleeves Monday morning and say, okay, I'm going to do what Varesh says. Where do I start? What do I need to look at? How do you actually execute on that? Yeah, I think it starts by organizing work and the company differently. You know, if you were to ask me to draw an org chart for any company, I'd go and draw a bunch of vertical boxes and then fill in the blanks for any company. Right? You have HR vertical box, finance vertical box, IT vertical box, etc., etc. And therein lies some of the problem. You have amazing, talented people sitting in vertical silos. So the first thing you need to do is organize work and the company, the way work gets done. And so you do it by value stream. Uh, another way to think about value stream is end-to-end -end processes. Order to cash, procure to pay, organize all of the work that way. And so you organize teams that way as well. And these are permanent teams that get assigned to it. And then there are three to four critical roles that need to run and manage that value stream or that end-to-end -end process. The first is a product manager. This is the person who, who is truly vested in the business outcomes. They understand the business outcomes that we, we seek to drive. So it's not about building a new feature or a new widget or a new function. It's actually a deep understanding of the business outcomes we seek. We're trying to increase customer conversion. We're trying to drive up revenue. We're trying to cost, take costs down. Buy how much, buy how far, buy when. Those are the business outcomes that that person is the guardian for. 
The second critical role is the engineering lead. And this is the person that's responsible for the ultimate technology platform and how we're gonna go and build the solutions. There's an architect and the architect is responsible for the integrity of the solution across every value streams and at the company level. And then the fourth role that I would add to that is a customer experience professional, right? That's really focused on delivering amazing outcomes for, for the customer. These four people are like peas in a pod. You know, I like to joke that the, the P in the pod, product engineering architecture are the three P's in the pod that have to be there. So I think it starts there. It starts by organizing work into value streams. Then it starts by making sure you have these roles into place. And then it starts by changing how your work intake process happens. There needs to be one singular intake process for all work, whether it's a bug fix, whether it's production support, whether it's a new project, whether it's innovation, whether it's the CEO who came up with a new crazy idea on a Friday. All of this work goes through a single intake process. And, there's a, and, and that's called your product backlog. And the way you go about managing the backlog is both an art and a science. And it's, it's not just first in, first out, it's highest value. There's lots of thought that goes into what work gets done. And that's how the team starts to work on, on, on the work. And then all work gets done in 90 day increments. I think about it as a time box, right? If, if you can't deliver tremendous business value in 90 days, you shouldn't be doing it, right? Gone are the days of these three month, six month, nine month, 18 month projects. For me, it's 90 day time boxes within which you deliver iteratively in two week incremental cycles using agile methods, et cetera, et cetera. So for me, that would be the starting point. The next thing I would be doing is having a real intense conversation with the CFO of the company and really shift how budgeting gets done. Most companies, it starts with a project. What's the project? And you start with an ROI and you're spending a lot of time justifying the project, most of the benefits of which never ever get realized. Instead of that, we have to think about building digital factories, right? And really think about what are the factories we'd like to build and what's the capacity of the factory? So it starts by looking at your backlog for the year and saying, okay, this is the work we need to do. And then run an analysis. This correlates to how many teams and how many people on each team. And then you work with the CFO to fund those teams in what I call a fixed or set capacity model. So now your budget is predictable. Your cost for the year becomes predictable. And these become permanent, sustainable teams that are just focused on delivering work and are not focused on getting budget approvals and project costing and all of those type of things. And I think that starts to accelerate progress. Yeah, and let me ask you about that. And I'm some, I think you've probably had that conversation with CFOs at a number of different companies. And um, I could be wrong about this, but I'm, I'm guessing that you don't always get immediate alignment that, oh yes, we absolutely should do that. Because it is a little different than the way CFOs normally like to think about things, which is, well, what am I'm spending this, what am I getting instead of buying a capacity? And I'm curious, um, how, do you, how do those conversations go? And how have you, you've obviously won that argument on a number of occasions. How do you go about winning that argument? If, if you go to your CFO and your CFO seems to continue to want to be operating in a more traditional, well, why don't you show me the ROI on the first thing you're gonna do and I'll fund that part. How do you persuade them, speaking kind of the C language of the CFO, so to speak, to, to get you more? How, how have you won that argument? Yeah, look, I, it's not even slightly different, the model. It's very different, right? So for most CFOs, 
you know, their need for reporting financials and how they report financials and how they close the books. And, and, and actually the debate always becomes, how do, you, how do you handle CapEx versus OpEx, right? Um, yeah, so it's a fundamental change to the, how, the, how the company operates. I think it starts by taking a historical look with the CFO and, and showing the CFO, one, the level of predictability has never been there. Two, the, the delivery on the business outcomes or the ROI that they sought after was never there. So, so thinking that the current model actually works is a fallacy. So that's the first thing. The second is, here's the beauty of this model. You get to see incremental value every two weeks and in a substantial manner every 90 days. So on an absolute worst case scenario, you're out of pocket for two weeks or you're out of pocket for 90 days. Right? You've not committed to an 18-month implementation project. So if you want to roll this thing back, you get to do that iteratively. And then the last piece is making sure that these product managers that I've been describing are actually the business owners. Right? And so it's not that there's a separate innovation team. It's not that there's a separate IT organization. These teams actually are managed by the product manager who's actually a business owner. And they, they therefore guaranteed of the business outcomes and they guaranteed that these people are working on the right priorities. And then you gotta try it, right? It's like, okay, let's, let's carve up one or two initiatives. Let's take a few teams and start to do this. You know, we did this at Avis. We started doing it with a few teams. We set up eight, eight teams in our first few months and the level of success we had with those teams were tremendous. The velocity and agility that they were delivering with, you know, things that typically took six months were being delivered in two to four weeks. And when the rest of the company started seeing that, they were like, we want more of that, right? And, and the reality is, look, you're not gonna pivot the entire company to this model, you know, in 90 days. So you've got to start somewhere. So start with a few teams, deliver on the successes. And what you quickly find is there's a pull from the rest of the organization that says, I want that. That's great, I love it. That's a very clear playbook. So thank, thank you for that. Um, you know, one of the challenges as you organize people differently, I know one of the things that I've noticed in my career, I've been in lots of companies that have gone through reorganizations or work with them and say, oh, we're organized horizontally, we should switch to vertical, or we're vertical, we should switch to horizontal, or let's organize diagonally or matrix organization. And one thing that I've observed is, no matter how you organize, I, I always notice this one fundamental problem, which is, Smaller teams seem to work better, and you're advocating a model like that, right? Smaller, empowered teams. And at the same time, when you have lots of small teams, it creates a different challenge, which is coordination. How do you make sure that everyone's not going in a different direction, different technology, and creating a disjointed customer experience? And so I always feel like this is the dialectic of this kind of work. If it's one huge team, you have more consistency but less efficiency. Small teams, more efficiency, but a, a challenge of how do you make sure that there's some coordination. Any any tips or thoughts about how do you how do you how do you find how do you solve that puzzle to get both? Yeah, look, the the working in a matrix world and working in a matrix organization is here to stay forever, right? Anyone who's trying to avoid the matrix is living in fool's uh, fool's paradise here. So you're going to live in a matrix organization. The question is which matrix makes sense. Right out of the gates, the number one tenant I have is that when you get assigned to a team, first team principles kicks in, which means your, lo your loyalty first and foremost is to the work you're doing for the team, not to your home organization, not to the center of excellence, not to any other vertical you've come from. First team principles is loyalty to, to the team. 
Now, managing the dependencies and priorities across multiple teams and across multiple value streams is where it becomes critical, right? And that's where I think having value stream owners at the entire value stream level that are responsible for all of the work that the product managers are doing, having enterprise architects that are responsible at an individual value stream level and across multiple value streams is important. And then where this all comes together, remember I talked about this concept of delivering work in 90-day increments. Every 90 days, you perform a planning cycle, right? And some, some methodologies call it big room planning, some methodologies call it program increment planning, but it's a planning process where all of these teams come together, share with one another what they intend to deliver over the next time box, share the dependencies they have with one another, get alignment and agreement on the work that will be done, get alignment and agreement on the business outcomes that will be delivered, and get alignment and agreement around the prioritization of that work. And this takes place every 90 days. Um, and so the level of actual alignment that you have is much higher than you've ever had within a company before. Yeah, yeah. That makes tons of sense. You know, it makes me want to ask you about something. We had the CIO of uh, Business Insider on, or I guess it's now just called Insider, a number of episodes ago. We got an interesting conversation about teams and product teams. And one of the questions is, what's a healthy period of time for somebody to be on a product team? In other words, there's the you're an expert in this area, you should stay on it for the next five years mindset. And then of course there's the, well, we wanna rotate people around and all that. Do you have a point of view on how long, once you assemble a team, how long you keep that team as a, assuming that it's reasonably functioning well. Of course, if a team is not working well, you make changes, but if it's functioning well, do you leave it indefinitely? Or how do you know when it's time to say, hey, change it up, shuffle the teams and, and create new teams? Yeah, I develop a team maturity model. Right, that looks at every team and the level of expectation and performance of that team as they mature. Right, on a scale of one to five, you know, one is we're just forming the team. We've just identified who the team members are. We have not fully staffed it. When you go to level two, it's fully staffed. When you level three, they're performing. And when you level five, now this is a highly optimized, highly performative team. My experience is to get to a level four, level five, once it's fully staffed, is typically a three to four time box activity, right? It doesn't happen day one, right? It takes that, that time to gain velocity. Ultimately, what every company is looking for is velocity, right? We figured out the what, we need it done with velocity, right? And you know, the days of cost scope schedule is done. The days of constraint these two is done. You know, we got clever and we said faster, better, cheaper, that's done. We live in the world of faster, faster, faster. The longer you can keep a team together, the, the more knowledge that team develops, the more knowledge they have, the more velocity you gain. So that's, that's undeniable. So structurally, my goal is to try and keep the team as intact as possible for as long as possible, right? And so what you never wanna do, you wanna always give people the opportunity to grow and develop their career, to pursue things that they're really passionate about. And sometimes that's not on the team. So what you end up doing is you wanna give people those opportunities on a time box basis. Right, every time box you evolve, you, you decide, hey, are we gonna move someone else to something else? But what you're never doing is deconstructing or decomposing the entire team. You know, taking an engineer off, taking a de designer off and moving them to something else and replacing that. As long as you have a coach, right? That's an, another important role that companies don't invest in, right? It's a product coach or an agile coach that's there responsible for the ongoing caring, feeding of the team and the coaching of the team. 
these type of changes in personnel is expected and is perfectly fine and sometimes brings a new found energy within the team. But I would like to try to keep the team intact for at least three to four time boxes because that's when you see the flywheel effect. You're talking about a, at least a year. Yeah. Got yeah. It, got it. Yeah. Makes sense. Great. Um, so, uh, so many more things I want to ask you about. You know, the, you, you're really kind of making me realize we talk so much about digital transformation. And so often, though, we think about transformation to go from one point to another point. And even if it takes a while, there's still a sense of that we're, we're hoping to arrive somewhere. Because after all, in a sense, we want to feel like something's done. That's a, that's a rewarding feeling. But on the flip side, you know, what you're talking, sort of making me realize that really when we talk about transformations in the world, it's sort of like, it doesn't just, you said something earlier, and I don't want to take your words, but this idea that, you know, it, 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 it's not a project, but it actually, it, 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 if you're changing who you, you are, then it's not something that's ever, ever really done. So I'm, I'm curious, what do you, when you hear people talk about digital transformation, you mentioned earlier how some people think of it as a, a technology project, and clearly that's, I'm certain, too limited, and I'm guessing most, most people listening would agree with that. But how do you define it? If in the end, it, it does start to become a little bit of a, a, a tough thing to wrap your arms around when we say digital transformation, since that's a popular buzzword. What's your definition of that? Yeah. Yeah, look, I'll, I'll get a lot of people that are going to throw daggers at me for this oh, comment, right? But I honestly think any company that has the role of a chief digital officer or a chief innovation officer or a chief customer officer, these are transient roles. That's a company that's operating in project mode. Now, it's not lost on me that most of the companies I've been at have hired me for that very role. And most companies I've joined, day one when I've set and I've joined, I said, my goal is to eliminate my role. This role should not exist. You have to build innovation, velocity, agility in the fabric of the entire company. It should just be how work gets done. It's not a separate group. It's not a separate department. It's not a separate person. Sure, you have centers of excellence that bring methods and tools and practices, but this has to be systemic throughout the company. When I think about transformation or digital transformation, I don't think about it as something separate to business transformation. I think the two are inextricably linked. You're talking about one and the same thing. So you're really talking of transforming the entire organization. And this needs to be done by how the company goes about performing work. Right. And so when I think about digital transformation, for me, there are four categories to this. One, the digital customer. How are we soup to nuts transforming the customer experience? and focused on three primary things, value, convenience, and choice. Now, if you think about what do customers want, these are the three things they want. What does Netflix deliver? What does Amazon deliver? They deliver value, convenience, and choice. So what are we doing as a company to transform these three categories for the customer? The second pillar is the digital operations, the actual running of the company. What are we doing to optimize the operation of the company so they're highly efficient? How are we automating things, driving things to more autonomous levels, using data to, to prescribe next best action, taking the robots out of the people and having the robots do the work and actually letting the people do the more human-centered work. So focusing, focusing on the operations of the business. The third pillar is growth. What are we doing to drive growth of the company? Whether it's optimizing existing channels that the companies have, unlocking new channels, optimizing existing products, developing new products, whatever in that category, but driving business growth. And then the last 
pillar, which I actually think is the most imp important pillar, which is the culture and operating model of the company. What are we doing to transform the culture of the company to be a, a product-centric, customer-obsessed, data-driven, outcome-focused company, right? And, and that's where the heavy lifting needs to take place. So when I think about digital transformation or company transformation, I think about all of these pillars integrated with one another, and that's the outcome you see. Ultimately, what's the, what's the end state? I like to describe it as a five-star, five-bar experience. Five-star, Amazon and Uber have taught the world what that means. It's just an amazing customer experience. Five-bar is a level of technical excellence where things just work, right? Your, your cell phone on the top right-hand corner, you have five bars. When that five-bar is full, it means you have the highest level of quality of signal. I think companies need to operate that way. Things just need to work, five-bar, at a level of experience that's nothing short of phenomenal, five-star. Fantastic. Well... I, 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 you're such a fantastic guest because I think you're, I can see your consulting background, even though I know it's many years ago, because you're offering the audience not just your opinions, but models to say, hey, here's how you structure it. Here are the four things. Here are the two things. So um, we'll make sure all these specific models are in the show notes. And I can totally see someone taking the things you're saying, turning it into a PowerPoint slide and using it in their next meeting. So this is great. I love this because my goal with this show is always actionable stuff. Someone can go and and use, if they're re listening to it on their weekend, they can go use it in the office on Monday. So I really, really love that. Um, so we have just a few minutes left and I'd like to turn to the topic of data, which I know we both feel is sort of uh, the, the core coin of the realm, if you will, behind so many of the things that we need to be able to do, both to make sure that our teams are performing well because we have data about their performance, as well as to actually deliver features for our customers because so much of what we're delivering now is driven by data in many ways. So what's your thought about the state of data, how companies are leveraging data, the opportunities, and what are the biggest challenges that the kind of large companies that you work with have to try to become a data-driven enterprise? Yeah, I, I think what companies are still wrestling with is who owns the data. And we're spending a lot of time, you know, with a, is it a distributed model? Is it a federated model? Is it a centralized model? So there's a lot of discussion and debate being had about just that. And I actually think it's a waste of time debate. Pick one and go. The, the worst thing you can do is continue this, this debate. What's more important to think about data is what are the categories you want to leverage data for? And for me, there's four categories that transform data. The first one is using data to inform your product roadmaps. So what are the critical products of the company? And what's the data that's telling us what we need to be doing with these products? How do we evolve these products? What are the features, functions, etc., that allow us to determine future product roadmaps? The second category is around customer experience. How are we leveraging data to tell us what's going on with the customer experience? What's the customer effort score? What's the net promoter score? How are customers actually using this product? How are we predicting how customers are using this product? And you're using that to actually govern and shape the customer experience. The third category is decision making. And you know, this, this seems to be the obvious one, right? You know, decision making and we'll have a new dashboard and this dashboard and that dashboard to help us make, make more decisions. The world does not need another dashboard. So again, if the company is spending a lot of their time thinking about, you know, am I doing Power BI? Am I doing Tableau? Am I doing a combination of the two? Which dashboard? You, you, you're in a revolving door conversation, right? The world actually does not need another dashboard in their workflow. What you need to figure out is how are you actually automating the action that that dashboard is intended to produce? 
So that's the fourth category. How are we using data to drive smart and intelligent automation, right? It's not just about predictive analytics. It's about taking that and prescribing next best action and automating that. And so for me, the company that takes the time in these four categories to really uncover the outcomes they seek in each one, then you backpedal, what's the data that supports that? Then you backpedal, what's the source systems that are providing that data? Your answers start to become very obvious in terms of what do you need to build in the form of data warehouses, data lakes and analytics platforms. Um, and, then, and then the biggest thing that companies don't do with data right now is most of the work typically gets driven by the big business card in the room. CEO, CFO, some executive traveling somewhere, sees something and then makes a call to someone. Hey, I noticed this, I need you to pull feature yeah. ABC. Nine out of 10 yeah. times, that feature is not going to add the benefit you need. And that's where you need an analytics function that says, you know, back to the single intake process, we'll take your input, it's gonna feed the backlog, we're gonna run data against everything that's in the backlog that's gonna tell us what's the outcome that this item is going to deliver. And I think if you start to use data in that manner, you start to have a transformed organization yeah. right out of the gate. And what do you think are the biggest barriers to companies being able to deliver on those four areas? You mentioned uh, data ownership. Is there anything, is that the primary one or are there some others as well? Yeah, one is time, right? Because data exists in so many disparate systems and so many different silos, you know, typically data projects starts by organizing the data, right? And the traditional model is let's go structure the, let's go structure this data and structure data warehouses and that kind of stuff. And the moment you say, yes, but, and, hey, we can solve a lot of these things with unstructured data. See, Google did not organize the entire world's data into formal tables and columns. They went about it the unstructured way. And that's the way we need to think about it. And some decisions, some data, we don't need to be precise. Directionally accurate is good enough, right? And so for the things you need to be precise in, yes, go structure the data. For things that you need to be directionally accurate, go with the unstructured data and you can make those decisions in hours, days and weeks, not months and years. That's a profound point. And I think a lot of people would probably say, well, the problem with the unstructured data is performance. You know, if I don't have it all in one place, will I be able to respond immediately when the customer comes to the website? And yet, Google search results are one of the fastest, you know, sites. Those results come up in milliseconds, right? And, and or they'd be worried about uh, accuracy. If I'm not constantly synchronizing it, I might not have the latest up-to-date information. And, well, obviously, Google doesn't necessarily always have up-to-the-second information, but of course the value is still extraordinary. So, uh, you know, to your point, there might be applications where you need that financial information, sure. up-to-date stock price or something, but the vast majority, I think you're right. If you don't have the thing that happened an hour ago, but you have it up to yesterday, close of business, or three hours ago, you're probably good in 99% of situations. So, yeah, that's, I love that Google, Google analogy. I never thought about that, but that's a really good point. Yeah, we, companies tend to apply the same brushstroke to everything, right? And it's like, same thing like risk. You, you apply the same risk profile to everything. Um, you know, it doesn't need to be that way. You know, when I was at Alaska Airlines, you know, when you fly and when you, when you run an airline, right, um, you think about mission critical systems. Yes, they are absolutely mission critical systems. You don't want to ever ground an airline, right? So in that lens, in that context, yes, make sure everything's buttoned down, everything's structured, all of those type of things right? But there are parts of the company that don't right. need to operate right. that way, right? They, they're easing right. that level of risk. 
So, you know, that was the approach we took there. We didn't apply the same risk tolerance to the entire company, right? And it's the same thing with data and the same thing with everything we yeah. do with the company. We cannot apply a fixed lens yeah. to And so many industries, I've worked in a few others where you have that same cultural mindset. You see it in, um, in energy. You know, I remember working with one giant energy company that had, you know, nuclear reactors. For sure, you don't want to do, you want very, very high predictability with what's happening with your nuclear reactor, just yes. like with an aircraft, you know. But that doesn't necessarily mean your marketing strategy has to apply that same level of rigor. And likewise, Absolutely. pharmaceuticals, you see something similar, you know, very cautious, careful in manufacturing of pharmaceuticals. But again, you have, you know, and then also you have the regulatory issues, which layer in both airlines and some of these others that layer another. We have to be careful element on top of it. But I, I agree with you. I think most people are are overly cautious. And, and I think that's a human, a natural human trait for people to be risk averse. I think that's probably built into us from when we were running from saber tooth tigers or whatever else. But it does seem like those companies that are most, most successful have figured out how to, how to overcome it. Absolutely. And, and for me, it's, it's, you know, know the situation, know the scenario, know the context, right? One of the most undervalued words in the English dictionary is context. Context is everything. Right. And once you understand the context with, win, with, with which you are operating, decision making becomes much easier. Mm, indeed. Varesh, this has been amazing. I'm going to ask you one last quick question. And uh, sadly, we are at the end of our uh, allocated time. But you're speaking on this podcast to people who are trying to drive transformation at tons and tons of large enterprises. Other than everything we've already talked about, which has been a gold mine, by the way, of, of, of not only knowledge, but like specific actionable steps folks could take. Is there anything else you'd say to them as they go back to work on Monday or whatever it is to try to continue to make the world a better place through transforming large brands? Any other final parting piece of advice? You know, look, what I would say is transformation is hard. This stuff is hard. If you come home from work every day feeling exhausted, you should be because this is really, really hard. What I will tell you, you know, back to my earlier comment, it's not a hardware issue. It's not a software issue. It's a human way issue. And to the extent you can actually bring the entire organization along, to the extent that everyone understands the new operating model and feels bought into and tied into it, your level of success is going to be much higher. Uh, but for those of you that are driving transformation programs, uh, I have a tremendous amount of respect and empathy for what you're going through. And if there's anything I can do to help you along your journey, just reach out and let me know. Well, and let me ask, uh, if people are interested in learning more about you and the work that you've done or reaching out to you or contact you for any way, what's, what's the best way for them to do that? The easiest thing, you know, LinkedIn, any social channel, I'm, I'm reachable, I'm available, so folks can feel free to just reach out to me. Okay, great. Well, we'll include your social links in the show notes so that people can look for those there. So Perfect. Wonderful. Well, Varesh, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. It's been amazing. And uh, thanks to all of you, as always, for watching and listening to the Winning Digital Customers podcast. I look forward to seeing you next time. Until then, keep transforming.